If you have one dollar to give to someone in need, and you have two people in front of you, one a believer and one an unbeliever, who do you give it to? Does the scriptures have anything to say about how we prioritize providing for the needs of others? That's something we're going to examine today from the Word of God. First of all, as we consider the teachings of Jesus, we need to remember that Jesus often uses hyperbole. That's that word when spelled out looks like it's pronounced hyperbole. I've actually heard a fairly prominent uh, uh, talk show host pronounce it hyperbole on accident. But what is hyperbole? Hyperbole is an intentional exaggeration for the purpose of driving home a point. Right? Here's some examples of hyperbole in Jesus' teaching. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away from you. He's making a point, isn't he? He's not literally saying, pluck out your eye if you lust, because you don't need eyes to lust, you still have your mind. He's intentionally exaggerating to make a point. Another example, we saw this from Luke, the sixth chapter. Jesus says, give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now, is Jesus literally saying that anyone who asks anything of you, you are to give them whatever they ask? No, that's hyperbole. It's an intentional exaggeration. What if somebody comes up to you and says, give me everything you own, your house, your vehicle, your wife. (laughs) Give me your wife. And I mean, you see, Jesus was making a point here, wasn't he? The point is, be generous. Well, as we consider the text from Luke chapter 14, 12 through 14, Jesus gives a parable there. Luke 14, 12 through 14. Jesus is at a dinner feast in the house of a Pharisee. He's already healed a man, and they were shocked that he healed on the Sabbath, and he rebuked them for their hypocrisy, because if they had a donkey that fell in a ditch, they're going to go heft it out on the Sabbath, but they're rebuking Jesus for healing a man. And he's also spoken a parable to them, and then he moves on with another here, and he says, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not... Ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back, and you'll be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, as we consider this in the first statement, I think Jesus was using hyperbole here once again, to drive home a particular point. Jesus didn't literally mean, don't ever invite your friends, family, or wealthy neighbors to dinner. That's not what he's teaching. He's driving home the point about hospitality to a group of haughty Pharisees. You see, because of their selfishness and their poor theology, 
the Pharisees despise the poor, the maimed, and the blind. They despise them because they only love people that could turn around and love them back and help them out. They would scratch the back of somebody that could turn around and scratch their back. And then they also had a faulty theology which said that if someone is poor, it's because they're a sinner and they're out of favor with God. Or if someone is crippled, it's because they've sinned and God is cursing them. Or if somebody's blind. Remember, even the disciples had bought into that theology, hadn't they? Who sinned that this man was born blind? He or his parents? See, they believed that all physical ailments are a result of sin. And we've looked at quite a few times that that's not the case in the scriptures. So, he was making a point. But we're not going to focus on this text today. God and his sovereignty put me in bed with the flu Friday and half a day Saturday, which are my normally my main preparation days for my sermon. But uh, I'd already gotten a jump start on it actually on Tuesday, and I was considering this and considering some things that could be looked at or could be clarified in light of this text and had followed up a little bit of this train of thought of ideas of what is the biblical order of priorities for materially providing for the needs of others. You know, Jesus here is saying, when you give us dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, but invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. He's speaking to this group of Pharisees who would have never considered inviting those type of people to their dinner. But what does the Bible say? Does it give us a list of priorities concerning who we are to help with material provision. Who do we look after first? And that ties back in with the question I asked at the beginning. If you've got a dollar to give, and you've got two people in front of you, a believer and an unbeliever, who do you give it to? Well, let's consider that today. Who do we provide for first? Do we provide for ourselves, or do we provide for others? Do we provide for our families, or the family of another? Do we provide for our church family or other Christians? Do we provide for believers first or do we provide for unbelievers first? Let's consider these things. Here's what I believe the scriptures teach is the biblical order of priorities for materially providing for others. First of all, we need to make sure that we're providing for our own needs so as not to be a burden to others. Secondly, we have a responsibility to provide for the needs of our own household. Thirdly, we have the responsibility to provide for the needs of the household of faith. And then fourthly, provide for the needs of unbelievers. And this is all in the context of providing material needs. Okay? I'm not talking here about providing the gospel specifically, but providing the material needs. So let's consider this. Is this biblical? Does the Bible support what I have presented here? Is it derived from the scriptures? Let's begin our study by looking at the fact that I believe the scriptures teach that first of all we have a responsibility to provide for our own individual needs to the best of our abilities. 
and in the various contexts in which we live. Obviously, this is going to look a little bit different, and we're not going to go into great detail about this today, but it's going to look a little bit different if you're a husband and the head of the household compared to being a child in the household. But there are even ways in which children within a household have responsibilities and can provide for certain of their needs and thus not be a burden but a blessing to their parents. As I said, we're not going to go into detail about that. The main purpose today is to look at this framework of prioritizing. So let's start with Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And this isn't specifically addressing the subject of materially providing for someone else, more the context of looking after someone's spiritual needs, but there, there are principles which can be derived from this which apply to providing for someone's physical or material needs. Consider verse 1 then of chapter 6 of Galatians. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And here's the principle. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For us to be obedient to the law of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we need to be looking out for others and desiring to help bear the burdens of others. But what does this look like regarding individual responsibility? Let's keep reading. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Notice that. We're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, but also each one is to bear his own load. In the Greek language, this word for burden here is talking about something that is too great for one person to bear alone. You know, there's certain things that we just can't carry on our own. There's certain things or certain times when the Lord will bring circumstances in our lives where we need other people around us to help bear our burdens. But, this other section, for each one shall bear his own load, that's talking about a burden that a person can bear on their own. And what that means is, there's an individual responsibility that if you can bear it on your own, that you ought to seek to bear that burden on your own, so as not to become a burden to other people, but rather to be able to be a blessing to other people. Make sense? By way of illustration, if someone's working a job, let's say 40 hours a week, and they need an extra $100 a month to pay the bills for their family, that's generally going to be a burden that a man can bear on his own. A resourceful man can go and find some odd jobs in a month to make $100. 
he can get on the internet. He can find things to buy and sell. He can go see about uh, doing some odd jobs here or there. In general, that's something that a man is going to be able to bear for himself. And so rather demanding that other people come alongside him and help him bear that burden, in general, that's going to be something that he'll be able to bear on his own and thus be a blessing and not a burden unto others. But there are circumstances, are there not, where people lose their jobs or they lose a house or they lose transportation and they have a burden which they need help with. And that's the type of burden where others need to come around them and be a blessing unto them and minister to them and that's where they need to make sure that they lower their pride level and receive the help that is offered to them. Because isn't it and guys, I'm speaking to us in particular here, but this applies across the board. Isn't it sometimes difficult to receive help from others? Because we don't want to have to admit that we can't do it ourselves. And uh, that can be a big problem for us. And that's pride. <laughs> yes, we ought to seek to bear our own burdens, but if the Lord puts us in a spot where we need help from others, we can even rob people of the joy of fulfilling the law of Christ because we're so stubborn in our pride that we make it a burden for them to give to us rather than a blessing because we're not grateful for what they're doing and encouraging them in their giving. So we ought to provide for our own needs. Another text which would support this, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning with verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. What's the principle here? People are to provide for themselves rather than sponge off of others when they are capable of providing for their own physical needs. So, that's where it starts. It starts at the level of individual responsibility and providing for your own individual needs. Obviously, as I said, this will be applied differently if you are a wife in the home compared to the husband in the home who is to be the primary breadwinner. But there are even ways in which wives and children can help look after their own needs in the sense of doing what God has called them to do in the home faithfully so that they can be a blessing in the home rather than a burden in the home. So that's the first priority. Secondly, it's providing for the needs of your own household. And that would include those immediately under your own roof. Also extended in the scriptures, I believe, to your parents and your grandparents 
if they reach a point in their lives when they have need. Consider 1 Timothy chapter 5, 3 through 9. First Timothy five, three through nine. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under sixty years old be taken into the number and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Now, let's consider the context for a moment. The context is looking after widows. And notice verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, not unless she has been the wife of one man. It was set up in the early church that the church would provide for widows who did not have family who could provide for them. But what is the first order of responsibility here regarding the widows? If any widow, verse 4, has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. You see that priority there? The priority for looking after the widows in this instance falls to the children or the grandchildren. Then notice another big principle that we see in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So this, I think, shows that second level of priority. The first is providing for one's individual needs. The second is providing for the needs of your own household. Widows are generally persons with material needs, especially in that culture where women did not work outside the home very often at all. It was very often the case that these were people with many material needs. The first priority for providing for them is the children, then the grandchildren. This is a biblical principle. Children and grandchildren who are here. The Bible teaches that if your parents or your grandparents reach a point where they need to be provided for materially and physically, that it is your responsibility primarily to do that. That's where the responsibility is primarily located. It's not the responsibility primarily of the government to look after them. It's not primarily the responsibility of the church to look after them. It is primarily your responsibility and my responsibility. That is what the scriptures teach. And then notice, someone is to provide for those of his own household. 
So, people who are dependents in the household, somebody under your roof, men, that you are responsible for providing for, they are dependent upon you, you as the head of the household are to provide for them. Generally, it is the case that this will be a man, but there are instances where, in the case of somebody being widowed or divorced, a woman could be the head of the household. And we do see that in the case of Lydia. And she was engaged in business and was called the head of, of her household. That can be the case. Generally, though, scripturally speaking, since a husband is the head of the wife and the wife is to submit to the husband, the husband will be the head of the household if there are both a husband and wife in that household. Or if it is a man in the household with his children. Children are to obey the parents. Obviously, the father is going to be the head of that household. And it is the responsibility of the head of the household to provide for those of his household. And notice here in the text, and this is a reason I think that this is prioritized at this high of a level. Notice the extreme seriousness of failing to provide for one's own household. What does it say here? It says that the person who has failed to do this, that he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow! Consider that for a moment. How often does the scripture say that if you fail to do this, that you have denied the faith? That is a serious matter. Men are to rise up and they are to provide for those in their households. If at all physically or mentally possible, they are to do it and to fail to do so is to deny the faith. The faith is summed up by Jesus as loving God and loving your neighbor. So, when it says that someone has denied the faith if he does not provide for his own household, He has denied the faith by willfully despising God's commandments and therefore therefore by not loving God as God requires. And he has denied the faith by refusing to diligently love those in his household by failing to provide for them and failing to pattern himself after the works of God who so abundantly provides for us our spiritual needs and everything that we have for those of us who are in the household of faith. So thus it is denying the faith. And worse than an unbeliever. Why? First of all, because he knows better. If he doesn't, he ought to know better as one who has been redeemed by Christ Jesus. But secondly, isn't it the case that in general, even unbelievers know that somebody ought to provide for their own household? That's something I think that's just kind of, in, in one sense, God, by His grace, His common grace and mercy upon men, has built into the conscience of people that they are to provide for their own household. Most unbelievers get this, that that is what they're supposed to do. 
And so a believer who fails to do it is even more responsible and it is even more despicable and it gives room to the enemies of God to blaspheme because they can point the finger and say, oh, that person claims to be a follower of God and of Christ, but look, they're not even providing for their own. It's a lazy man. He refuses to work. And his family suffers. What a God that is that he serves. I don't want any part of that. You see, it gives room for the enemies of God to blaspheme. So he's worse than an unbeliever. I also, I want to insert here that when talking about providing for one's own household, that it's also the case, and there's a principle in Scripture, that we should strive to go above and beyond just having enough to provide for our own households. But we ought to strive to have extra so that we are able to give to those who have need. We can see this principle derived from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians 4.28 This in the particular context of a thief and exhortations to those who have been thieves but it's a good general principle that also can be derived from this. Notice in Ephesians 4.28, Let him who stole steal no longer. That's the put off. That's the stop. That's the thou shalt not. But what's the positive? What's the put on? What's the thing to do? What is the thou shalt? Rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. You see? Laboring with the hands so that there's extra. So that extra can be provided for those who have need. It's a good general principle. We ought to desire to be able to help provide for the needs of others. So after we have provided for our own individual needs, so that we're a blessing and not a burden upon others, and after we have provided for the needs of our own household, then I believe that the scriptures teach us and very expressly teach us that next on the order of priorities is to provide for the needs of the household of faith. To provide for the material needs of other believers. Turn with me to Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Galatians chapter 6, beginning with verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. 
but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and notice now this next clause, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Ah, do you see the priority that is given in this text? It says we're not to grow weary in doing good. As we have opportunity, we're to do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So what does that mean? Tying back into that first question, if we have a dollar to give, and we have a needy brother or sister in Christ before us, and a needy unbeliever before us, the scripture gives priority to those who are of the household of faith and says, first of all, we show love to them and provide for their needs. And I believe that text very clearly states this, especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's an, a special responsibility, a special privilege, because we have a special connection. We're spiritually united in Christ. And we're called to love one another. So, a man has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever for failing to look after the needs of his own household. And then if you want to draw an analogy from that, we have a spiritual household. Christians have denied the faith and are worse than unbelievers if they fail to provide for one another's material needs in the household of faith. It says there in 1 John, someone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see? So, even though we should desire and strive to have extra to give, to all, as the Lord gives us opportunity, we should prioritize in providing for other believers, those who are of the household of faith. And this shows our love for one another. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35? He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, when we look after one another in the household of faith by materially providing for one another, it is a shining testimony to the world of the very love of Christ. So we're to be characterized by our love for one another. Unbelievers should be looking into our churches and looking into our lives as we live in community with one another in the body of Christ. And they should be marveling at how well we provide for one another's needs whenever a need arises. It should be something that the Lord even uses to draw unbelievers to himself 
And they see the community of Christ and how we truly love each other by reaching out to one another and giving to one another and providing for one another. They should see that and they should desire, by the grace of God, to be a part of that. And to be a part of such a network and such a family of people who show such love toward one another in a dog-eat-dog world in a climb the ladder and make it to the top no matter how many heads you crush under feet world we can show the love of Christ by providing for the needs of one another therefore as we have opportunity let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith I want to mention here now that I think by inference from the scriptures not necessarily from explicit statements in the scriptures but I think by inference and I think common sense also points in this direction that a person's home church is their immediate household of faith so when the scriptures say that we're to provide especially for those who are of the household of faith, God has created an institution, and it's called the church. All those around the world who are redeemed by the blood of Christ are part of the church universal. They're all believers, and they're all united together in spirit with Christ Jesus. But the Lord, Lord has also called that there be local churches, local assemblies, local flocks of people. Local churches that preach and teach the word of God. Local churches where believers covenant with one another to serve the Lord together. Local churches that are under the oversight of elders and deacons that the Lord has called to shepherd those flocks and to lead those people. Local churches where the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are administered. These local churches are someone's immediate household of faith. I want to consider a text which I think we can draw some of these ideas from. 1 Peter chapter 5, 1-4 through 4. There are quite a few others We're not going to take time to look at all these today If you have any questions about this I'd be happy to t- discuss it with you But let's consider 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4 through 4. This speaking from the perspective of elders and giving elders their marching orders. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, and now notice this phrase, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. See, there are passages such as this and quite a few other passages which indicate that there are particular flocks who have particular leaders who are the leaders of those flocks and that there are particular people that are a part of those flocks and those people recognize that they are a part of that flock. So, this implies, and we also see it if we do a word study on the word church throughout the scriptures, that word church, as I mentioned, can be referring to the church universal, every believer on the face of the earth, but it also can be referring all the way down to local assemblies. The church at Thessalonica. The church at Colossae. You see, the local gathering or assemblies of believers, the particular flocks. And as we see here, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. There's a recognition that you are part of a particular flock. You see, if I, if I travel up to Washington for some reason, and I decide to visit a church up there on a Sunday, I go in and sit down, I'm sitting down there realizing that I am not a part of that particular flock, and I hope that the elders there realize that they are not my particular shepherd. You see, because that's not the church that I have covenanted myself with. That's not the church that I attend regularly. It's not the church that I'm committed to. So, I believe the scriptures teach, by inference, that there is a church family that is closest, and that is those that we gather together with to worship with as we are doing even now. But it does, I believe, involve even a particular covenant. And so in one sense, I make a case there for church membership. I do believe it's a biblical concept. Uh, I'm not going into all the other passages of Scripture that I would derive that concept of church membership from, but I, I believe it's a very biblical and a very helpful principle. And it gives us a vision as well. A vision. Consider this. If every believer covenanted with, committed themselves to, a church family. And they said, we're going to come alongside you and work with you and we'll all work together to promote the glory of God in this world. If every believer did that, and if every church <coughs> realized that they have a priority to provide for those who are in their midst, their special church family, and if every church fellowshiped with, networked with, joined in denominations or 
fellowships or assemblies or associations with other churches of like mind who also had believers in their congregation and believed that they were to look after them, but they also then were willing to work together with the churches within their association. So if there was a need that a congregation could not bear on their own, there are other congregations joined together with them that they could bear. Do you see the, the, the vision? Every believer would always be provided for. If there was ever a material need, all would be provided for. Now, sure, there might be circumstances in persecuted lands where somebody is thrown in prison, but you know, consider even in the scriptures, we see passages of scripture where, like in Hebrews, it's speaking of these people standing up for others who had probably even been imprisoned and being willing to associate for them and provide for their material needs, even though they knew that it was going to reflect on them and they might be persecuted by the government as well. There are passages of scripture where the Apostle Paul is commending people for providing for other believers. People who they so wanted to help provide for the needs of others that even in poverty they gave of what they had and they're commended by the Lord. Can you see that vision there? That vision. The believers are all looking after one another in that way and connected in that way. And the needs are provided for. And all people, all believers, in one form or the other, can be provided for materially. So, after that then, we as believers should desire to dig deep and then extend the hand of generosity to unbelievers as well. To reach out to them. To help provide for their needs. We even do this through supporting certain missionaries. Such as Trevor and Teresa Johnson. We support their work in Papua, Indonesia. They're going over there primarily to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Primarily to train native folks there to be able to lead churches and communicate with their own people the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Trevor and Teresa are both trained in medicine. And when they go into the jungle and when they go to the Danawagi people, they go in with provisions. They go in with medications. And they reach out to those hurting and desperately wicked people. And they help heal them of their physical needs. And they provide for their material needs as they give them the gospel. And so even as we support our missionaries, because we believe in supporting missionaries who care for people and will give them both the gospel and care for them to take them under their roofs and provide for the material needs, we are helping support the poor in that way as well. And the unbelieving poor as well. So after we provided for our own individual needs, seeking to go above and beyond so that we have extra to give, after we provided for the needs of our own households and thus have kept the faith and given an example to unbelievers, 
After we provided for the needs of the household of faith, believers in need in our local assemblies, and then extending to other needy believers that the Lord brings to our attention, then we provide for the material need of unbelievers that the Lord brings into our paths. And hopefully then, as unbelievers look on, the Lord will use our love for one another and for others to draw them in so that they look in and see and and maybe even want to throw out the H word all the time. What's the H word that unbelievers use so often regarding believers? Hypocrites, 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 right? They always want to use the H word. And you know what? Most of the time it sticks. All right? I've I've got it stuck all over me. I've been a hypocrite. We all have. We're sinners. But if we are showing our love toward one another in such a way that if anybody ever has need in our midst, we are there providing for their need, at least they could look on and say those people will look after one another. They'll care for one another. No matter how much they're a hypocrite about everything else, they love one another, and we can't deny that. (laughs) Hopefully that would be the case. So what does that look like for us here? By God's grace and for God's glory and for our joy in God, we should strive to the best of our ability to provide for our individual needs, provide for the needs of our own household. And in one sense, to be like the Sackets. If you've read any Louis L'Amour novels, I'm not promoting these Louis L'Amour novels so much. Louis L'Amour was not a believer, and the heroes of his Western novels were not believers. And there's a lot of false theology and philosophy thrown in there. But as I already mentioned, you know, some unbelievers really get the idea that you provide for your own. You look after your own. The Sacketts had this idea. In the Sackett family, if there was a Sackett anywhere in need, no matter where they were at around the world, there were going to be other Sacketts that were going to come and they were going to help out. Usually it was a Sackett who had a ranch and there was a, a cattle baron who was trying to run him off his land, you know, and the other Sacketts had come in with guns blazing. But the principle was there. It had been instilled in the family by Barnabas Sackett, the founder of the family, the patriarch of the family. And he raised his sons and he said, Son, if you ever see a family member in need, No matter what it takes, you will be there and you will provide for that need. Should not we who are of the household of faith promote providing for the needs of others and being there to provide for one another's needs? So should we not say to one another, My brother or sister in Christ in this church family, if I have a house, you have a house. As long as I have transportation, you will have transportation. As long as I have food, you will have food. 
In Mark chapter 10, 29-30, Jesus answers Peter who says, Lord, we've given up everything and followed you. What do we have to show for it? And here's what Jesus says. Mark 10, verse 29, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Wow, notice that. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, if you give up all these other things, you decide to follow me, you're persecuted, you lose your stuff, your family disowns you, he doesn't say, first of all, well, just wait because it's all going to be made right in the end at the resurrection. No, what does he say first? No one who has done this shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. These things. Well, how can that be? It's because you have just become a member of the household of faith. It's because in the household of faith you have family. (laughs) You have family. And your connection is thicker than blood with your spiritual family. You have a deeper connection, a lasting connection, an eternal connection and relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's because you have houses. Because if your brothers and sisters in Christ are behaving biblically, they will say, as long as I have a house, you have a house. And you know what that means? That means I've got houses all over the world. (laughs) Now, obviously, I'm not eliminating the biblical teaching about personal property okay don't misunderstand me there <laughs> I'm not I'm not to, I'm not teaching communism here this morning but the principle is that we care for one another and so if somebody loses their house and they need a place to stay they know that my house is open and your house is open and that they'll have a place to stay, a roof over their heads, right? And so we have that around the world with believers who are truly looking after one another and following the Lord's guidance. And consider this. We're to trust God to provide for our material needs, right? That's primarily where our trust is to be in the Lord. But you know, the Lord doesn't usually multiply the olive oil in our jars so that we just keep on pouring it out and it never gets empty. The Lord doesn't usually turn uh, the two fish in our freezer into thousands of fish. 
How does the Lord usually work? Through the means of brothers and sisters in Christ providing for one another in their needs. That's how He usually works. So let this be an encouragement to you. Let it be an encouragement to you. I believe the Lord even gives us as a tool to help us battle against worry. Again, ultimately our trust is to be in the Lord, but the Lord works through His people. And you have people around you right now that if you have a legitimate, serious need, they will dig deep to provide for your needs. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. What a blessing. So it's not just the mega churches with mega dollars who can make a mega difference in the lives of those around them. But if all of God's people and all of God's churches were to be good stewards of God's well and to follow God's list of priorities for material provision, think about the glory that God will receive in this world. But for now, we do our part. We do our part. We pledge ourselves to one another to diligently, consistently, joyfully for the glory of God in whom we live, move, and have our being and to whom we owe everything, even our very souls, we pledge to look after those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have provided for us so abundantly. We thank you, Father, that you have called us to partake of the joy of giving to others that you have called us to learn what it means that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we pray, Father, you'll help us be diligent at every level, at the level of providing for ourselves and bearing our own load, at the level of providing for our own household, providing for the household of faith, and providing for the needs of unbelievers. Give us grace and strength in this endeavor. Unite us together in this endeavor around the world as believers in you. And no matter where you have called us to go and what you have called us to particularly do in your kingdom, maybe we be looking for other believers to covenant with, to work alongside of, so that together we can promote your word and provide for the needs of your bride. We pray that you will be glorified in all. In Jesus' name, amen.